1: Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. Chris Smith, good morning. Where in the world are you today?
2: Hello, we well, I'm sitting in a sunny Cambridge, in England. Uh, it really is sunny for a change, although slightly chilly. We're going into autumn now,
1: of course. As your weather warms up, ours cools down. Fantastic. Now, uh, while we get the calls on the line, just very quickly, I see a couple of stories breaking this week. Uh, one of them being that the best way to stop superbugs, in my layman's understanding, is to rotate the drugs we take.
2: Yeah, really clever. This. Uh, People were really quite concerned earlier this year when some remarks were made by the UK's chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davis, when she said, look, within 20 years, we're not going to have any more antibiotics because the bugs are evolving to become resistant to all of them and there are not very many new drugs coming along in the pipeline Mm. but there's a really interesting paper which has come out in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week. It's by two researchers in Denmark. They're Leila Imamovic and Morten Sommer and what they've done is to say well it's interesting because if you look at bugs that have become resistant to an antibiotic if you come along with a different antibiotic very often the bug, in order to become resistant to one type of antibiotic, it sort of drops its guard against other classes yeah. of antibiotic. Yeah. And if you can find out what those uh, bugs are, that it, what those drugs are, that the bug has become more sensitive than normal to, if you switch from antibiotic one to which it's becoming resistant to antibiotic 2 which it is very sensitive to now then you can wipe out the bugs including as a priority the ones that are becoming resistant so they did these simple tests with e coli that they grew in the laboratory they they made different strains of e coli become resistant to different antibiotics and then they tested each of them in turn against the other antibiotics that they hadn't made them resistant to Mm. to see which ones they would become resistant or sensitive to and they've come up with this sequence of if you give drug a and then give drug b and then c and in some cases drug d and then go back to drug a again Mm a whole load of networks of, of giving drugs in different orders this can wipe out the rates of resistance amongst these organisms so it's a really stunning piece of work which shows that actually we may not need to invent millions of new drugs if we're just
1: very careful with the ones we already have and use them in the right order i wonder practically if if the same would apply to hospitals who fight off uh, superbugs with antibacterial products whether the same would apply there you simply just rotate what you've used in the past well, the
2: difference between the, the way that you sterilise an environment and the way that you treat a patient, we don't generally treat patients with the equivalent of bleach. Yeah. We give them <laughs> antimicrobial agents. Now, bleach is like a nuclear bomb for a bacterium. You don't really get resistant to nuclear bombs mm. and you don't get resistance to bleach very easily. So what hospitals do is they deep clean environments with really powerful oxidising agents which are based on chlorine light bleach and or hydrogen peroxide. And this is delivered at a dose that it's really not possible for the bugs to survive. So the cleaning strategies are fine, but mm. where we need to watch out is how you actually... Uh, control, use and are are diligent and judicious with your use of the antibiotics that we want to give to patients because the more of an antibiotic you use the more resistance in the bugs you're going to see, because you're effectively putting that stuff into the environment and selecting out for bacteria that can tolerate that compound. But if we're careful with how we do it, and we do it the way these guys are outlining, then
1: we may be in with a chance. O 8830702 If you're in Cape Town, 21 The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, standing by. Paul in Bernoni. Good morning. Uh, good morning to you. Thanks for taking my question. Pleasure. Uh, Humankind has evolved evolved in many hues or colors as we spread across the globe. Um, My question is now, if the cradle of humankind in South Africa is indeed the site of human evolution, what would the original skin color likely to have been that evolved there?
2: Hello, Paul. It's interesting because I asked a lady who works at Penn State University and who came to South Africa for SciFest about four or five years ago. Her name's Nina Jablonski, that very question. So it must be a really good one. And what she said was, the interesting thing about humans is that we first of all would have had to have evolved to be dark-skinned. Then we would have had to evolve to be light-skinned as we migrated away from Africa. So the ancestors of early humans were an ancestor that we share with say a chimpanzee and about six million years ago we diverged from an ancestor that we share with the chimp and because those animals were hairy they had light skin because their hair was full of melanin which would have soaked up sunlight so they didn't need to put the melanin the pigment in their skin but as we lost our hair as we evolved then our skin is exposed and we needed to darken it to protect it from the fierce african sun So the first generation of primitive humans would have got progressively darker and darker skins. Then as they migrated from 50,000 plus years ago out across the rest of the world, and especially going up into high latitudes like uh, where I live, where the sun don't shine very much, certainly not compared with where you live, then the pressure on you to need that dark skin to protect you and specifically to protect your body's supply of folic acid, because sunlight breaks down folic acid, you don't need that darkness anymore. In fact, you need more sunlight to make more vitamin D. So you evolve then to have pale skin. So it's interesting, we've evolved to have dark skin, and then
1: evolved in some parts of the world to have light skin again. Let's go to Wayne in Germiston. Hello, Wayne. Yeah, hi, how are you? man. what's in your mind? Good morning. My question is, uh, I know how jet works or a propeller or whatever, but if you are in space, a rocket booster, how does that move something because there's nothing to push against?
2: Yes, good question, Wayne. And the answer is that there's no need for it to push against anything apart from itself. Now, this might sound slightly counterintuitive because we think of when a rocket blasts off, it needs to be pushing against something to push itself away from the ground. Mm. But that can't be how it works because... Once the rocket takes off away from the ground, what can it then push against? And it all goes back to some physics that was worked out by Isaac Newton, uh, who was working in Cambridge uh, a few hundred years ago, Mm. and he came up with several laws of motion. And his third law of motion is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I'm paraphrasing slightly. But in other words, if you push on something, it pushes back on you an equal and opposite amount. When your rocket is firing, what it is doing is burning fuel and producing a gas which is accelerated away from the rocket with very high velocity. In order to accelerate away from the rocket with very high velocity, it's got to be pushing on the rocket. So it's actually the gas being thrown out of the back of the rocket very hard, which is imparting an equal and opposite force on the rocket itself not anything else being pushed on. So it doesn't matter whether the rocket's on the Earth's surface or in space. You're still throwing gas and in big volumes and very fast high masses backwards out of your rocket, and this is what is propelling you along.
1: I'm so glad we got that uh, question answered because it was something that uh, was raised by the listeners on a couple of other shows uh, across the last week or so. Now, Ntombi the Reimsuch has uh, a question which I would love the answer to. Hello, Ntombi. Hi, good morning, how are you? Lecca? what's your question? My seven-year-old son asked me last, last Friday, he says, Mummy, why in the morning when you wake up on the side of your eyes that they tears? And also when you yawn, why do you have tears? So I said I'll call in and ask you. Great stuff. Listen on the radio for us, Chris.
2: Hi, Tomby. The answer to this one is that your eyes make tears using your lacrimal glands, which are on the upper outer part of your eye, just below your eyebrow. And this makes tear fluid, which comes down a little duct and onto the eye. The tears run across your eye, going across and downwards towards the inner edge of your lower eyelid, where there is a little black speck. And if you look in the mirror, you will see this tiny black speck, and that is called a punctum. And it is your tear equivalent of a plug hole. And that black punctum is connected via your nasolacrimal duct to your nose. And the tears normally go across your eye and when you blink you push the tear film downwards and inwards. The tears go down that plug hole and are then going into your nose and swallowed. But when you yawn, then what you do is screw up your eyes. And if you screw up your eyes, you squeeze shut the plug hole. It's like putting your foot over the plug in the shower or in the bath. The water can't get out. So the tears continue to be produced temporarily. They build up in the eye, can't get away and so they spill out as, as tears down your face or around your eyes temporarily. And when you go to sleep, uh, what can happen, because the tear film slows down and thickens, then the plug hole can block up a little bit and you get some of that sleep, the residue around that area, stopping the tears draining away so your eyes
1: can water when you first wake up until you brush the sleep out of your eyes. There we We go, go. Uh, Tomby. Indrin in Laudium wants to know via the SMS line, Chris, is it true that when bats leave their caves, they always fly to the left?
2: Um... I haven't heard that one. Bats are very good at navigation and they do it magnetically and they also use sound so they for short distance navigation they're firing pulses of ultrasound very high frequency sounds which can be 20,000 hertz right up to 80 or 100,000 hertz of sound which bounces off of objects and they're listening to the echoes to work out what's around them that's how they navigate in the near distance and avoid obstacles and catch their food. They also have fairly limited eyesight, although not brilliant, but it's not terrible. And at nighttime they also very much rely... Sorry, when, when they're navigating of longer distances, they also very much rely on magnetic fields. They mm. have a magnetic organ in their head. And there's a, a guy who I was talking to recently who actually does these interesting studies where he traces bats where they fly to. And he can jet lag a bat and he can... Uh, disorientate a bat with a magnetic field so what he does is you get these bats he puts them in a magnetic field and the bats always look to where the sun rises and they know that at that time of day that must be east and so they set their magnetic compass to east in their head at that time if you put them in a magnetic field when the sun rises then you can reorientate their brain compass so that they then fly off uh, in the wrong direction and he takes these bats puts them a distance away from home having jet lagged them and and reoriented their compass and they go all over the place before they eventually work out where they should be going and, and then they fly home so uh, i think bats are very good at navigation and i'd be surprised if they always do anything um they're going to go the direction that gives them the safest route and the mm-hmm. one that they're familiar with i would say
1: all right now speaking of animals that are able to orientate themselves uh, tell us the story about the sea louse with the tidal clock
2: Oh yes, well, there's a, a paper that's come out in the journal Current Biology this week. It's by uh, researchers at Cambridge University and also at Aberystwyth University. David Coxon is one of the authors, and they've been looking at the sea louse, which is this little creature. It's a, it looks a little bit like a shrimp. Uh, it's about a centimetre long, and intriguingly, these animals know when the high tide is, so they bury themselves in the sand and they stay asleep for most of the day, and Every time there's a high tide, they wake up and they swim around for a little while and then they put themselves back just before the tide drops again into the sand and they go and rest again. And you might say, well, maybe they're just responding to the water. But what these guys did was to collect some of these specimens from the beach, put them in the laboratory, in, a, in a, effectively in a little tank, and watch them in the dark. Mm. And they can see these animals know when there should be a high tide because every 12 hours they wake up, swim around, go back to sleep again. Now, it's not just their normal body clock. Everything on Earth has a sort of intrinsic clock, as far as we think. Bacteria have a clock, plants have a clock, we have a body clock, that's why we get jet-lagged. They were able to prove that it's not the normal body clock that's doing this in these animals. They clearly have some other kind of neurological clock ticking in their tiny crustacean brain, which enables them to keep a 12-hour cycle, so they know when the high tide is due, and that's the time to wake up, to go out, feed, swim around and then hide again just before the water level drops. And they want to try and find out how this clock works because we humans also have other bizarre kinds of clock. We talked here recently about the idea of humans having a moon clock. We're tuned into the cycle of the moon over a 28-day cycle because people's sleep changes. So we, we think the same clock could be running in us, albeit in a slightly different way, so we want to understand how it works.
1: Ricardo, in four ways, your question. Yes, good morning to you. The normal fuel cells that they use in the world are using hydrogen. What would happen if I used to should put a spill to it and feed it alcohol? What byproduct would I get?
2: Hello Ricardo well people are looking at alcohols and in- including methanol as one possible fuel for these fuel cells because the way a fuel cell works you-, you basically want a hydrogen donor which you can then react with oxygen um, the benefit of using just hydrogen is that it 's clean and pure and you can feed the hydrogen in bring the oxygen in from the air react the two together on the f- on the cell catalyst and uh, the the reaction energy is then fed into whatever you want to do with it. The, the problem with using alcohols and things is that these are not uh, a pure source of hydrogen. You've got carbon atoms. They're a hydrocarbon with some oxygen in there. So you have to have a cleverer catalytic system to degrade them. But I did see uh, certainly that pe- people are looking at uh, methanol as one possible fuel for these fuel cells because you just need a catalyst that will enable you to, to degrade the methanol into a source of hydrogen and then you can um, react it with oxygen and run your fuel cell.
1: Aaron in Constantia, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my six-year-old asked me the other day, why are most people right-handed? I had no answer for him. Let's
2: see if we can get you one, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, Aaron. Um, this is a very difficult question that we don't know, as in we genuinely as a scientific community don't know the answer to. What we do know is that, as you, as you are quite rightly pointing out, 80-90% of the world's population are right-handed and we know that this is not a new phenomenon because there was a lovely study done in france from uh, montpellier in uh, the i think the late 90s early noughties where they went and looked at some cave paintings and if you go and look at cave paintings and including Aboriginal art in Australia actually, frequently you will find impressions of hands on cave walls and the way those impressions are made is that you hold a blowpipe in one hand, you put the other hand against the wall and you blow the paint at the hand and use your own hand as a stencil. Now if you were to do that which hand would you hold the blowpipe in and which hand would you put on the wall? Well you'd probably use the hand that you were best at controlling to control the blowpipe and you'd use your least preferred hand as the template and Uh, If we do this experiment today, on modern day people, you find a certain proportion use their right hand, a certain proportion use their left hand. If you look at cave people uh, paintings, you will see exactly the same proportion. So that suggests that we have been handed for thousands and thousands of years tens of thousands yeah. of years and also handedness goes with language we know that the dominant side of the brain is where our language resides and that's also the same side of the brain that controls the hand that we prefer using so there seems to be some kind of tie-up between where our language is and where our handedness is and in 90 percent of people it means that the left-hand side of their brain is the dominant one that's where their language is and because one side of the brain controls the opposite side of the body you end up with uh, a right-handed population animals though there's no hand dominance a- animals do have handedness mm. or finnedness or pouredness um but they have equal splits among the population so 50 percent of dogs tend to be right poured 50 percent left poured you don't see this strong bias like you do in humans and it's the, the distinction is the language we think
1: I remember being punished as a youngster for being left-handed. Shame on that teacher. Now, uh, Anita in Fishhook, interesting question as well. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Um, You know, watching all these CSI and medical detectives, um, it made me wonder if two identical uh, twin brothers married identical twin sisters, would all their children share the same DNA? (laughs)
2: <laughs> right, let's just think this through. So we've got um, a pair of twins, and they're going to marry a separate pair of twins.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. And so they're going to have children that are going to share 50% of their DNA with their parents. And th- what was the next part of the question, Anita? Uh, so if you just got two identical twins identical
1: who are... Identical twin brothers yep. marrying identical twin sisters... Yep. And then they all have children. Now, will their children combined will all have the same DNA?
2: Well, they'll, they'll share 50% of their genes with each of their parents, and that means that they'll share 50% of their genes with the other two parents, but they won't all have the same DNA because there, there'll be some mixing up when the genes are sorted out. So they'll, ha- they'll be 50% similar as opposed to... If you were to do the same experiment with non-twins, so if me and my brother compared, say, my children, if he has some children, and we compare how many genes they share, well, my children have 50% of my genes, and they have... 25 percent of my brother's genes they'll therefore have half of that number with their cousins uh, whereas your twins will have a much higher ratio 50 percent because they're so closely because they're effectively the twins are clones of each other
1: chris always enjoy the slot as a listener even better to be part of it this morning standing in for really thank you so much for your time this morning Thanks, Udo. have a great weekend everyone we'll catch you in a week from now
0: thinking about your next career move in research and development